The Holy Gospel according to John from the third chapter. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you. We speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Gospel of the Lord. Whenever I read this gospel story, I have a soft spot in my heart for Nicodemus. We'll never know his motives, but in his way of coming to Jesus, he displays many of the qualities that I admire most in people. He's respectful, he's inquisitive, and he's willing to admit that he doesn't have all the answers. In the context of the story, we learn that Nicodemus has an important role to play in his religious community as a teacher, but he still seems open to the possibility that God may be doing something new. In all of that, I think he is a good person to remember on this day when we celebrate the mystery of the Holy Trinity. In some respects, the effort to describe God or to name God in the language of the Trinity is risky because it can easily slip into a form of spiritual arrogance that presumes now to know everything there is to know about God. And that's why I like to come back to Nicodemus. With him, there is a rich spiritual tradition to embrace, a life-giving Torah to teach, but I think for him there's also mystery 
Unless I'm reading him wrong, it seems like Nicodemus is truly wondering if God might be expanding all of that. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And as their conversation progresses, it becomes clear that Jesus indeed is thinking about faith and God in expansive ways. To truly see the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you have to be born from above. At first, this is very confusing to Nicodemus, but it starts to make more sense when Jesus connects this whole birthing process with the work of the Holy Spirit. When you are born of the Spirit, Jesus says, you lose your ability to control things and to understand everything because the Spirit blows where it wills. And you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. From there, Jesus goes on to talk about the ever-expanding love of God, which is poured out in whatever way God chooses, in spite of all the boundaries and the limits imposed by people who want to control things, people who want to tame it or confine it. In truth, Jesus says, God's love is poured out even on the arrogant, self-centered power brokers of this world who do everything they can to control people and control their own destinies, who violently oppose the establishment of God's justice and God's peace in their earthly kingdoms. That's what I think Jesus means when he says, for God so loved the world. The Greek word for world that John uses here is cosmos. And admittedly, it can be understood in many different ways. Cosmos can mean the earth and all that exists in it and around it. It can mean all people, all nations. But in every place where this word is used in the Gospel of John by this author, cosmos describes a world that is at enmity with God, the part of this world that is against God. Speaking to his disciples, for example, Jesus said, if the cosmos hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. It may sound jarring to us, but given the use of that word throughout John's gospel, we should probably translate John 3.16 as for God so loved the God-hating world that God sent his only son. To me, that's the most radically inclusive and expansive way of understanding Jesus' words. And it fits. It fits well with the rest of his life and mission. Because in the end, it underscores the promise that no one is excluded from this love of God, even enemies along with everyone else and everything else in all of creation are loved. We don't know how these words of Jesus impacted Nicodemus, but I'm thankful for all of the ways in which they have opened people's hearts and people's minds 
to the truth about God's infinite love throughout the centuries. And for all of the ways that it has moved us, helped us to move beyond hatred and exclusion. But at the same time, I am deeply saddened by the way that these same words of John 3.16 especially have been used to promote exclusion by Christians around the world. As one commentator said, John 3.16 is perhaps the most beloved verse in the New Testament. And yet when it becomes an assertion of exclusion, condemning some people to hell rather than assuring them of God's extravagant grace, it is also one of the most destructive verses in the Bible. What she meant by that is that Christians have often used this passage to exclude everyone who doesn't confess the same thing about Jesus, or even people within the Christian community who don't confess it in the same way. It's been used by Christians very often to condemn many in their own fold who admit doubt about Jesus, or who, like Nicodemus, simply don't understand. If John 3.16 stood all by itself, with no other words or stories or images around it, it might be easier to see how people arrived at that interpretation. But Jesus doesn't leave any room for that when he says, in the same breath, indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I wonder where we would be today if every child and youth and adult who ever memorized John 3.16 had also memorized John 3.17 along with it and held them together as one long declaration of love. The fact that we have allowed them to be separated says a lot about what we have lost along the way. And if you don't think that that loss has caused a tremendous amount of pain and suffering, just ask the people who have been told that God's love is reserved for others and not for them. Ask the people who have been told that God doesn't love them as they are or that God prefers one race of people over theirs, or that God looks down on their gender, or that God approves their lower place in society. In my view, the fact that all of this has been done in the name of Jesus is both sinful and shameful. And that's why I do feel a strong connection to the Christians in our time who are striving to reclaim the Jesus who took Nicodemus' view of God and expanded it in ways that he could never have imagined. In a statement that several Christians drafted earlier in Lent, they wrote, the most well-known verse in the New Testament starts with, for God so loved the world. We in turn should love and serve the world and all of its inhabitants. Last Thursday, many of those same Christian leaders took their commitment to reclaim Jesus to our nation's capital and to a candlelight vigil at the White House. 
in his, in his remarks to the group that gathered there, including Pastor Shervin, Bishop Michael Curry of the Episcopal Church in the United States said, love the neighbor you like and love the neighbor you don't like. Love the neighbor you agree with and love the neighbor you don't agree with. Love your Democrat neighbor, he said. Love your Republican neighbor, your black neighbor, your white neighbor, your Anglo neighbor, your Latino neighbor, and your LGBTQ neighbor. Love your neighbor, he said. That is why we are here. And that is why we are here. That's why we're gathered together as the body of Christ. That's why we're here for worship, to welcome the promise of God's expansive love for every one of us and to share that love with the world in the same way that Jesus did. That's why we hosted an iftar meal here last Sunday with Muslims and Jews and Christians from the larger community. That's why we hosted families in need of housing here for the last seven days. And that's why we're preparing to offer more support to refugees coming to our land. That's why we remain committed in our congregation to covenants of presence in our life together, where we promise to treat each other as equals, to suspend judgment, and to welcome all in the way of Christ. In the end, that's why we do all that we do in this place for grace. Loving God and loving our neighbor is the way that we celebrate the expansive love of God for all of the world in Jesus Christ. And I'm glad to be doing that with you, all of that. And each year I look forward to discovering how God will expand our faith and our lives in ways that we have yet, not even yet imagined. Thanks be to God. Amen. If you have prayer cards, just please hold them up and the ushers will come and gather them.